Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, today on our weekly roundtable. On Thursday, April 22nd, Earth Day was marked around the world as President Joe Biden tried to do undo some of the damage to the role the United States plays in stemming the environmental crisis. But is it too little and too late? How do the tensions between the United States and adversaries China and Russia bear out in efforts to tame environmental devastation? And what about frontline communities in the global north as well as the global south? Can the climate crisis be halted without the global north putting up money and resources to assist the global south? Can the market economy and environmental justice exist simultaneously? Also, the killing fields uh, by police of black people continue, it seems, unabated. Let us go now to hear the voice of one of the aunt of one of the latest victims, Andrew Brown. Let us go to that clip now. He had a, a, a good laugh, a nice smile, and he had good dimples, you know, when he talking and smiling, his dimples were always show. And he was kind of like a comedian. He always had a nice joke to talk about or say. He did not finish school, but he did encourage his children to get a good education because he wanted them to do better than him. After Derek Chauvet was convicted for killing a black man, and the next day, here's my nephew, shot and killed by a police officer, and, you know, my nephew didn't deserve it. An update tonight in the deadly police shooting of a black man in North Carolina. New details revealed in just the last hour. They're important, and here are the main ones. More than one deputy who, who shot at Andrew Brown Jr. Now, yesterday, the Pasquatank County Sheriff said it was one shooter. But then today, he said it was multiple deputies. The lawyer for Brown's family says it was three deputies who are now on administrative leave. Brown shot and killed yesterday morning in Elizabeth City while deputies were executing an arrest warrant. Witnesses say he was in his car when the shots were fired. Tonight, the sheriff reports that warrant was for a felony drug charge. He says Brown is a convicted felon with a history of resisting arrest and that there is body cam video showing the attempt to arrest Brown, but that only a judge can order the release of that video. The attorney for Brown's family speaking today, saying Brown was not armed and was shot while trying to get away. To my understanding, Mr. Brown was not armed and the bullets entered into the back of the vehicle as though he was leaving the scene. Well, the sheriff wouldn't comment on whether Brown had a weapon. He says the state's Bureau of Investigation is looking into exactly what happened. Protesters marching in the streets today, they want that body cam video released and they want to see it. The sheriff promising there will be transparency and accountability. And uh, that clip reflecting some of the latest in following the police killing of Andrew Brown. 
And now in Florida, Texas, and other states, they are putting forward a slew of laws that have the effect of criminalizing protests and protesters. This as the George Floyd Act to address reform in policing stalls in the U.S. Senate. And voter suppression bills continue unabated. It feels like war. Our panelists are Dr. Gerald Horn, Laura Carlson, and Jackie Goldberg. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated, so on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Biden administration officials and corporate and union leaders are among the U.S. participants in the second and final day of the White House virtual global climate summit. Yesterday, President Biden pledged the U.S. would make dramatic greenhouse gas reductions to address the climate emergency. More from Mary Sherman. President Joe Biden announced a bold goal at day one of a virtual climate summit with 40 world leaders. The United States sets out on the road to cut greenhouse gases in half, in half by the end of this decade. Meanwhile, at a House hearing on the impact of fossil fuels on climate change, 18-year-old Swedish activist Greta Thunberg chided the U.S. over fossil fuel subsidies and called on U.S. leaders to step up their efforts to cut carbon emissions. We, the young people, are the ones who are going to write about you in the history books. We are the ones who get to decide how you will be remembered. So my advice for you is to choose wisely. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Mary Sherman. 20-year-old Dante Wright was laid to rest in a nationally broadcast funeral. Civil rights leader the Reverend Al Sharpton delivered a thundering eulogy. He promised black people will never shut up and suffer and said changes to federal law are coming. The now former Brooklyn Center police chief says the police officer who fatally shot Wright mistook her gun for a taser. Christina Honestead reports. Reverend Al Sharpton led Wright's eulogy inside a crowded church. Sharpton's eulogy was a stinging rebuke of the possibility that Wright was pulled over for having air fresheners dangling from his mirror. Wright's mother has said her son called her after he was stopped and told her that was the reason why. Well, we come today as the air fresheners for Minnesota. We trying to get the stench of police brutality out of the atmosphere. Wright's mother and father, Katie and Aubrey Wright, spoke about their son at his funeral. I never imagined that I'd be standing here. The roles should completely be reversed. My son should be burying me. I don't really speak much, but words can't even explain how I feel right now. You know, that was my son. I'm Christina Onestead. India has set another frightening global record in daily coronavirus infections for a second straight day. Nearly 330,000 reported cases. That number is certainly an undercount. The situation has been worsening by the day with hospitals taking to social media, pleading with the government to replenish their oxygen supplies and threatening to stop new admissions of patients.
An advisory committee may make its recommendation today on restarting use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The advisory panel to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has been reviewing the rare cases of blood clotting following administration of the J&J vaccine. More reports have emerged. One woman in Oregon died two weeks after the dose. Another woman was hospitalized in Texas. About 7 million doses of the vaccine were administered. Several European nations and South Africa have resumed vaccinations with J&J. The House of Representatives approved a bill that would turn the nation's capital into the 51st state. The House approved the bill along party lines on a vote of 216 to 208. New York Democrat Mondaire Jones took issue with Republican arguments against D.C. statehood. I have had enough of my colleagues' racist insinuations that somehow the people of Washington, D.C. are incapable or even unworthy of our democracy. One Senate Republican said that D.C. wouldn't be a, quote, well-rounded, working-class state. I had no idea there were so many syllables in the word white. One of my House Republican colleagues said that D.C. shouldn't be a state because the district doesn't have a landfill My goodness, with all the racist trash my colleagues have brought to this debate, I can see why they're worried about having a place to put it. Republicans objected to Jones' remarks. An identical statehood bill passed the House last year. It quickly died in the then-Republican-controlled Senate. The Senate passed legislation to combat the rise of hate crimes against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders on a near-unanimous vote. Only Republican Josh Hawley voted no. Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirono's legislation would expedite the review of hate crimes and provide support for local law enforcement. In response to the thousands of reported violent incidents in the past year, They came in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic and President Trump's rhetoric. As important as the content and substance of the bill is the message of this bill that we in the Senate are going to stand with our AAPI community and indeed any community that is discriminated against on the basis of race or any of the categories that you and I can think of. Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirono. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Uh, Today, we're going to kick off our weekly roundtable with a focus on the uh, environmental crisis. Some are calling it a catastrophe or a disaster. Thursday, April 22nd, marked Earth Day. Our planet is indeed in a state of emergency. Forests are being destroyed, wildlife being killed, oceans being polluted. Meanwhile, extreme weather killing millions of people and other species around the world, according to Global South. Today, we find ourselves mired in a serious environmental crisis due to rapidly accelerating climate change. The Institute of Geographic Sciences and Natural Resources Research recently reported that the massive melting of glaciers as a result of global heating has caused major shifts in the Earth's axis of rotation since the 1990s. According to the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, life on planet Earth is in extreme danger if we do not achieve, quote, rapid, far-reaching, and unprecedented changes in all aspects of society, end of quote, by 2030. 
On Thursday, April 22nd, the United States and other major powers participated in a global summit called by U.S. President Joe Biden, aiming to hike their targets for slashing greenhouse gas emissions. Let's go to a roundup now from BBC about that summit and the environment. The more the world heats up, the more dangerous it becomes. That's what this is all about. More intense flooding in the UK and many parts of the world is more likely. While in some regions, like Central America, the big fear is droughts getting even worse. Failed harvests are already forcing thousands to leave their homes. All of a sudden, we can see the whole, whole sphere. It's one reason why, with a video, President Biden is making climate a priority. We know just how critically important that is, because scientists tell us that this is the decisive decade. This is the decade we must make decisions that will avoid the worst consequences of a climate crisis. This virtual gathering saw the leaders of the world's biggest economies and some of its most vulnerable nations all calling for action on climate change. We're suddenly getting a flurry of promises, counted in different ways but all significant. The United States to cut its emissions by up to 52% by 2030, the European Union, 55% by the same year, and the UK, 78% by 2035. China, the world's biggest polluter, says its emissions will fall from 2030, but President Xi wants more developed nations to cut first. Developed countries need to increase climate ambition and action and make concrete efforts to help developing countries accelerate the transition to green and low-carbon development. This Earth Day protest was in Indonesia, and American politicians got a similar message from Greta Thunberg. We, the young people, are the ones who are going to write about you in the history books. We are the ones who get to decide how you will be remembered. So my advice for you is to choose wisely. Can President Biden do this new target? Well, Sophie, there's no doubt that the goal he has set himself is ambitious. It marks a distinct break with the Trump presidency, who pulled America out of the climate change agreement, and is much more ambitious even than when Barack Obama uh, signed up to the climate change deal in 2015. So those are the optics of it. But it's also going to require a change in American people's behaviour. The gas-guzzling cars that they drive might have to go. Um, the way they heat and cool their homes might have to change. And also industry as well, where coal and uh, oil are consumed in very large quantities. So those are the challenges. But there's also the political challenge of getting this through Congress. Republicans are sceptical, not just about the science, but about signing up to a deal that Russia... And uh, India, as we heard, are not making those sort of commitments uh, to bring massive change about, and China too. And so that is the particular optics of it. So if Joe Biden wants to show that he is a leader on the world stage, then box ticked today. If he wants to bring about a 50% reduction in emissions, that box still has a big question mark in it. Right. And that was the BBC. Meanwhile, we recall that back in February, uh, President Biden rejoined the 2015 uh, Paris Agreement, which was re reversing a decision by Donald Trump. Remember, Donald Trump had dropped out of the Paris Agreement. 
Uh, meanwhile, smaller countries impoverished by capitalism, imperialism, and colonialism have expressed concern that their demands for financial assistance in tackling climate change continue to go unmet. Impoverished countries were promised $100 billion a year in climate finance uh, from 2020, more by 2020, more than a decade ago at the troubled Copenhagen Climate Summit in 2009. However, that decades-long commitment, which was then repeated in 2015 with the Paris Accord, was never met. I'd like to welcome our panelists. Let's start with Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program, who works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. Based in Mexico City, she's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura Carlson is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura's uh, line has, has dropped for a moment. We'll get her back and uh, do a proper welcome. Meanwhile, Jackie Goldberg, governing board member of the Los Angeles School Board, District 5. She's a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council. Before being elected to council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. A pleasure to be here. And Dr. Gerald Horn, Moore's Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston, who has written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He's also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Dr. Gerald Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Right, well, while we are sorting, Laura Carlson is is back. Laura, welcome. Thank, Thank you for joining you, us. All righty. And okay, Laura, we're actually going to start with with you. You heard our intro. We're starting off with the uh, with the climate crisis with the environment and, um, of course, the summit uh, that happened uh, and is still going on. Um, it, well, it ends actually on Friday. So your thoughts, uh, Laura Carlson, because uh, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change I think is absolutely right, where they say rapid, far-reaching, and unprecedented changes in all aspects of society must happen by 2030. Your thoughts on this, and tell us a, a bit about what you know of activity that happened on this past Earth Day. Right. Well, the, the point of this statement by the United Nations is that the change must be systemic, that the capitalist system cannot continue at this rate of plunder and, uh, and emissions, especially in, in reach any of the goals defined by Paris, which are themselves low. The promise of Joe Biden to cut the emissions from the 2005 levels by 50 to 52 percent is a step in the right direction. At least we don't have a climate denier in the presidency anymore. However, the line that America is back is disconcerting. What we need is multilateral leadership that takes into account 
the very deepest causes of the climate change. Uh, one of the Greenpeace officials in, in the U.K. said that this climate summit had more targets than an archery competition, and that was really the emphasis of it, and noted that these won't really reduce emissions without regulation and resources, and we're still not seeing that. As far as the representation of the Global South, I really want to underline the participation of Shie Basquiba, an indigenous Otomi from Mexico who is herself a climate refugee. She was forced to flee her village in Mexico because of repeated droughts in the past years and then went to high school in New York City and became a leader of the Youth Fridays for the Future movement. In her speech, along with Greta Thunberg as the representative of the youth, uh, that are working in the climate change, in the movement against climate change. She noted that the majority of the 40 leaders who were present are from the global north, that those who most suffer were not fully represented, represented, and that the climate change itself targets the global south and black and brown communities. She also pointed out that you can't talk about a green com economy without talking about, re re about uh, eliminating those uh, exploitation models that can also take place within renewable energy. And she demanded that there be no new fossil fuel infrastructure and made a flat-out statement to the leaders, you need to accept that the era of fossil fuels is over. This was a slap in the face to the presentation of the Mexican president and others who is banking on restoring Mexico's position and the national, national resources through the development of Pemex, the oil company, and fossil fuels. And then finally, we've been working this week in the context of Earth Day with women defenders of land and territory. Um, from throughout the Latin America region. And this has been a source of great inspiration because while the, the summit and the world leaders are talking, they are um, not looking at what's happening from the grassroots. What they need to do is start withdrawing funding from governments that are murdering land defenders governments that are imposing mega projects that we know have devastating environmental effects. They need to start listening at the solutions that are coming up from indigenous villages, from women defenders that are very small scale but are really at the root of what we need to do to save the planet. Right. Thank you for that, Laura Carlson. And, and you know, Jackie Goldberg, uh, you know, I'm sure the world leaders, uh, many of them express a sense of relief that it was uh, a Biden administration that we're dealing with and not the previous uh, Trump administration uh, that was so, uh, you know, opposed to doing anything, it seems, on the environment while rolling back a lot of um, measures uh, that were uh, put in place to protect the environment. Nevertheless, the reality is, is that in the United States, there are many agricultural practices that are not sustainable, that are 
impacting negatively uh, the environment. Of course, we know about fossil fuels. Um, and we also, in, including the companies, about 100 companies have been the source of more than 70% of the world's greenhouse gases since, uh, emissions since 1968. And ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, Chevron are identified as among the highest emitting investor-owned companies since 1988. But on top of that, what's not talked about a lot is the military is one of the world's largest polluters, including the U.S. military. So one has to think that if Joe Biden is serious about cutting emissions that environmentalists say even those moves are not enough, he's going to have to tackle these other real pressing uh, issues. If not, um, we won't be heeding the warning by the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, Jackie Goldberg, your thoughts on all this? Well, you know, I think uh, that things are changing of their own because the price of solar energy is now cheaper than both gas and uh, oil. And so is wind energy. So there's several things that, that the, the, besides cutting the subsidies, which I think should be the first action, I, I think it was in 2012 that Obama said it was time to get rid of the subsidies. At that time, I think they were around, um, I think, $4 billion a year, but actually most experts said actually it was between 10 and $40 billion a year. And, you know, when he said that, the oil company profits had reached a price of a, staggering heights uh, because of the record $145 a barrel price while he was in office. So what first things we have to do is here's some of the things that have to be done. We have to cut the volumetric ethanol excise tax credit, which gives oil companies $31 billion in tax credits. Intangible drilling costs, that's for the, for the, the Gulf of Mexico. They got $8.9 billion. Oil and gas royalty relief, $6.9 billion. Depletion allowance, $4.3 billion. Refinery equipment <coughs> deductions, $2.3 billion. And I could go on and on. So that's the first step. But, but probably the step that will make the most difference is investment in solar and investment in wind. Because the truth of the matter is, is that here's one of the weird things. The market is already beginning to change things. And you can see that as you look at electric cars becoming the first and foremost thing that people are trying to do in, in, in the American auto industry and in Europe and in Asia. There's a race to have the best electric cars. There is an emphasis now on electric ovens as opposed to gas ovens because eventually we can produce electricity without fossil fuels. So there's a lot to see, but what it takes now is real investment. I think the investment may be even more important than canceling the oil subsidies, although the investment could come by canceling the oil subsidies and producing subsidies for solar and wind energy. These things have to happen, but more importantly, in this clip that you played, we must be a part, the North, global north must be a part of funding, <clears throat> pardon me, the relief for these things and the changes away from gas and oil uh, have to help those nations that are under-industrialized and who are using gas and oil and coal to industrialize. I saw a, me a message yesterday that Mexico's looking to go back to coal. So we're looking at places, looking at fossil fuels because they don't have an economy that can 
produce the kinds of subsidies for clean energy. The United States and the Western, the global north, as we're calling it these days, we must be a big part of investing in, in change in the uh, outcomes because it is not enough just to change our own. We must help the rest of the world that doesn't have the economy of the global north. Right. Thank you, Jackie Goldberg. And Dr. Gerald Horn, um, many of us have known for quite some time now about the phrase environmental racism. And when we look at the frontline communities, we see indigenous lands greatly, greatly being impacted. I mean, the, the Navajo Nation, where uranium mining had happened, so many people getting ill, um, you know, from that. And uh, in black communities, where are always fighting off uh, some kind of uh, polluting industry that wouldn't be placed in a higher income community uh, being placed in them. And then you see the rise in things like uh, asthma. I mean, and, you know, when people talk about climate refugees, they think about people having to flee flooding, et cetera. But there are lots of people, I mean, individuals like myself, because of my vulnerable lungs, I've had to flee Los Angeles for a while just to be out in the desert for a bit, just so I'm able to breathe properly. Uh, Properly without, um, you know, getting sick or getting some kind of uh, respiratory impact. So I, I wanted you to talk a, a bit, if you might want to comment on environmental racism, but also is aid in this instance to help countries of the global south uh, to deal with the climate crisis? Is it really charity or is it just money owed? And the other question about the market economy and environmental justice um, existing uh, simultaneously, Dr. Gerald Horn. Well, certainly the current iteration of capitalism, which stresses the so-called Washington consensus, shrinking the state in particular, is inimical to the kind of strong state that is needed to deal with this climate emergency, this climate crisis. For example, we know that the Republican Party is particularly anti-status, except when it comes to the Pentagon. And yet, if you look at the proposals uh, uttered yesterday, not only by Mr. Biden, but by other leaders, they presuppose a strong directing role for the state. And certainly, the pandemic obviously presupposes a strong directing role for the state in terms of guaranteeing vaccination. The problem is that, once again, the Republican Party and those that it represents is harshly opposed not only to the strong role for the state, but in many cases, the, the role of science. They don't necessarily accept the science of climate change which is reason for, shall we say, uh, cause and concern about how we're going to go forward. Because keep in mind that it was George W. Bush who renounced the Kyoto Protocol of 1997, followed by Donald Trump for renouncing the Paris Climate Accord uh, during his uh, stormy tenure. And we need to realize that with this climate emergency, Inevitably, there are going to be population shifts. You mentioned the rising of the oceans, for example, uh, which could cause more folks from the Pacific Islands to flee to Hawaii, and those folks fleeing to North America, and people from the Caribbean fleeing to North America. But that will only uh, help to exacerbate the kind of racist angst that you see in the Republican Party, because they're concerned about the demographic shifts in this country uh, which, of course, is causing them to react rather hysterically. 
And then there's a question as to whether or not the United States, on the one hand, can confront China, and on the other, on the, on the other hand, work with China, the United States and China, or the two major emitters right now. And it's unclear if that kind of relationship will work, particularly when Mr. Biden is referring to the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, as a thug. And then there's the fact that China, in a sense, has a head start with regard to green energy. And so by stressing green energy, uh, Mr. Biden is, in a sense, playing into the hands of Beijing because, of course, they're dominating uh, solar energy uh, as we speak. And if you look at electric vehicles, which is another part of the Biden plan, well, you see China has a head start there. But even the U.S. manufacturer Tesla having one of its main plant plants uh, in Shanghai. So there is the further problem of the climate hypocrites, of which there were a number at the summit yesterday. And I'm afraid to say that one of the chief hypocrites in Canada, where Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, on the one hand, sings from the Green Hymn Book, but on the other hand, tries to push oil exports and tar sands exports and, and all the rest. So uh, right now, we have to be very much concerned about where this climate emergency will eventuate. Right. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Gerald Horn. We're going to continue our weekly roundtable. We're going to take our station break. Let's go to our station break now, and we'll be right back with our weekly roundtable. I can tell you Public truth to power. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Great news. Our website is back. Check it out at sotrueradio.org. And if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook and our handle on Instagram and Twitter at sotrueradio. We are heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in that state of Washington. Washington, Washington State, and internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Russia. Yeah, we do have some SoundCloud listeners in Russia. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. It is our weekly roundtable, but you know what? It is also National Poetry Month. Our uh, resident poet out of East L.A., Ron Baca, reminded me of that and sent a uh, incredible uh, poem by the late Mary Baraka that I think really fits very well with our roundtable discussion today. Let us go to hear Mary Baraka on This Is Why We Americans. Why is we Americans? Budida, Budida, Budida. Budida, budoo, bid, did, 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 boo, boo, boo. What I want is me, for real. 
I want me and myself and what that is is what I be and what I see and feel and who is me and the what it is and who it is and when it me is what it be. I'm going to be here if I want, like I said, self-determination. But I ain't come from a foolish tribe. We wants the mule, the land. You can make it 300 years of blue chip stock in the entire operation. We want to be paid in a central bank, the average worker, farmer wage for all those years we gave it free. Plus, we want damages for all the killings and the fraud, the lynchings, the missing justice, the lies and frame-ups, the unwarranted jailings, the tar and feathering, the character and race assassinations, historical slander, ugly caricatures. For every Sambo, step and fetch it, flick, we want to be paid. For every hurtful thing, you did or said for all the land you took for all the rapes all the rosewoods and black wall streets you destroyed all the miseducation jobs lost segregated shacks we lived in the disease that ate and killed us for all the mad police that drilled us for all the music and dances you stole the styles the language the hip clothes you cop the careers you stopped all these are suits Specific litigation as represent we, be like we for reparations for damages paid to the Afro-American nation. Budida, Budida, Budida. We want education for all of us and anyone else in the black pelt hurt by slavery. For all the native peoples, even them poor white people you show all the time is funny. All them Abners and Daisy Mays, them Beverly Hillbillies who never got to know Beverly Hills, who never got to Harvard on their grandfather's wills. We want reparations for them right on, for the Mexicans whose land you stole, for all of North Mexico, you call it Texas, Arizona, California, New Mexico, Colorado, all that, all that, all that, all that. be dee da doo all that you got to give up. Autonomy and reparation to the Chicanos and the Native Americans whose soul you ripped out with their land. Give self-determination, regional autonomy. That's what my we is asking, and they're going to do the same when they demand it like us again in their own exploited name. Yeah, the education, that's right. 200 years. We want a central stash, a central bank with democratically elected trustees and a board elected by us all to map out from the referendum we set up what we want to spend it on to build that Malcolm sense self-determination as self-reliance and self-respect and self-defense, the will of what the good Dr. Du Bois beat on, true self-consciousness, simply the psychology of freedom, Budida, Budida, Pidida, Budida, that ba 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 Budi, Budi, Boo, Boo, Boo. Then we can talk about being American. Then, then we can, then... Then we can listen. Then we can listen without the undercurrent of desire. We will only talk of voluntary unity, of autonomy, as vective arms of self-determination. If there is democracy in you, that is where it will be shown. This is the only way we as Americans, this is the only truth that can be told. Otherwise, there is no future between us but war. And we as rather lovers and singers and dancers and poets and drummers and actors and runners and elegant heartbeats of the sun's flame. But we is also at the end of our silence and sit down. We is at the end of being under your ignorant smell, your intentional hell. Either give us our lives or plan to forfeit your own. Wow, a powerful poem there, the late Amiri uh, Baraka. And we paused in our weekly roundtable as a nod to this being National Poetry Month uh, to share that a really powerful uh, poem with you. Our weekly roundtable panelists, Laura Carlson, uh, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. And uh, 
we are going to to just frame how we're wrapping the show up for the rest of the uh, for the hour. The killing fields continuing of police murders of black people. Also, a slew of laws being put in place to criminalize protests and protesters. And meanwhile, um, uh, the act, the George Floyd Act, to address the reform in policing is now stalled in the U.S. Senate. There's some discussions about um, perhaps uh, some negotiation and compromising. And voter suppression bills continue unabated. To me, as a person of African descent, it feels like war. But um, Thursday, uh, April 21st, uh, marked the funeral of Dante Wright, um, who was killed by uh, police just 10 miles from where George Floyd was killed. Let us hear from Dante Wright's aunt. Dante Wright, life matters. Another family, another funeral, another eulogy for a black man killed by a white police officer. He was loved by so many. He's going to be so missed. Dante Wright's family now seeking fair justice in the city where George Floyd was murdered. They too have studied their son's death over and over. The body camera images capturing the moment he was shot by an officer who says she mistook her gun for a taser. I've never seen my family go through so much pain. Today, Dante's aunt told me of the family's trauma. And it all comes back down to the color of my skin. The color of their skin. We're hated from birth and we cannot control how we come into this world. Only God has that control. But because of the color of my skin, I'm, 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 I'm taken out for no reasons. We're being murdered for unjust things. And it's always a mistake. It's always, well, let's find out what they did in their life and stuff. But you're forgetting that we're human. We're people as well. Excuse me. The officer who shot Dante Wright has now been charged with manslaughter. His family struggled to accept his death was a mistake. That's not a mistake. That's not a mistake. A taser, bright yellow, a gun, black, dark silver, titan, whatever you want. Taser, eight ounces, pistol, two. Dominant side, non-dominant side. 26 years, it's what you train people. That's not a mistake. Others will eventually judge on that as this family seeks solace and justice. All righty, and uh, just very moving words there from Dante Wright's aunt. And with the outpouring, I know I certainly have been traumatized. People across the nation and the world traumatized by all of this slew of murders, what seems like modern-day lynchings uh, to me. And there have been an outpouring of protests. 
particular following um, the videotaped murder of uh, George uh, Floyd by Derek uh, Chauvin. But now a slew of bills um, trying to criminalize protesters are appearing across the country, including in, in, in Florida, uh, in, in uh, Minnesota, and other parts of the country. Let's go now to a short clip. Um, unfortunately, I'll have to say that from Fox News, but this is about the Florida bill. It is the strongest anti-rioting pro-law enforcement piece of legislation in the country. And there's just nothing even close. Backed by law enforcement from across central Florida at the Polk County Sheriff's Office, DeSantis announced how the new crackdown will work. If you riot, if you loot, if you harm others, particularly if you harm a law enforcement officer during one of these violent assemblies, you're going to jail. The new law increases penalties if you're arrested during a riot and keeps you in jail until first appearance. It also makes it illegal to topple statues or monuments or block streets. It also prevents municipalities from defunding police. Opponents, including Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren, say it's overly broad and therefore potentially dangerous. This bill left just enough room for prosecutors to abuse the law to criminalize the mere presence at a large public gathering where other people are doing something wrong. And that's where it tears a couple corners off the Constitution. Black Lives Matter Restoration Polk agrees and is looking into possible legal action. We are exploring the option of actually, of actually taking this to court. All righty. So, uh, Laura Carlson, you know, it's almost like a, a, a head. I don't know what it does to your head to really hear the emotion of Dante Wright's aunt. Of course, this following the verdict, the Siobhan verdict, you may want to say something about that. And now um, this response uh, to protests. Um, clearly, the protests have been effective in some sense, given the verdict. But here we go. Laura Carlson. They were very moving words, and as far as the verdict goes, what we see from the poem is that it talks about reparation. It talks about systemic change, self-determination, autonomy. You just don't get that from these verdicts. Yes, it was the right thing to do. It was the only thing to do, given the evidence and what happened, as well as giving the climate in the country that will no longer accept as normal the killing of black people by the police. But we have to take into account that this is the first time in Minnesota history that a white police officer has been convicted for killing an African-American. Black people make up 20% of the city's population and more than 60% of victims in city police shootings. And I'm sure this can be said of many cities throughout the country. So we cannot create these conditions that finally led to a, con a conviction. In the case of Derek Chauvin, every time something like this happens, we're looking at an average of three police shootings a day. And this is something that has not even diminished, despite all the public attention that's been on it since the murder of George Floyd. So Merrick Garland says the Justice Department will examine whether the Minneapolis police routinely used excessive force. But what we need to say is why is this happening on a systemic basis and handling the problem from there. As far as the laws to criminalize protests are going, when we put side by side the movements to stop police brutality 
and the demand not just to reform the police, but to deeply reform through the Breathe Act and others that would abolish the, depart- the DEA and go much more deeply into what the problems and the causes of this violence are. When we put that side by side with this pushback from the Republicans to criminalize protests and protesters, I think you're right, Margaret. We are looking at a war climate. We're looking at a very fundamental power struggle that's going on that's not just Republican pushback. It's an offensive that would basically not only criminalize protests and protesters, but try to shift the, uh, the balance of power within the country in the face of a growing movement against racism, against police brutality. We have, in addition to the Florida law, Oklahoma and, and Iowa, that would grant immunity to drivers who run over protesters. Indiana would bar anyone convicted of unlawful assembly from holding state employment, including elected office. Minnesota would prohibit those of convicted convicted of, of unlawful protesting from student loans, unemployment benefits, or housing assistance, a law that's blatantly anti-poor and anti-people of color as well. And then Kentucky, where Breonna, where Breonna Taylor was killed and no one was charged, they would have it, they would make it illegal to say bad things to a cop. So this is, this is a far-reaching offensive on the part of the GOP in the face of a very profound and potentially historic, already historic, really, movement to change this. And I just want to add that when we talk about ending police brutality, we have to also talk about ending the exportation of police brutality. The United States is paying millions of dollars every year to train police in other countries when its own record is abysmal. Right, thank you, and for making the connection. Also, the the Amiri Baraka poem you write does give a context to all of what we're discussing here. But uh, Jackie Goldberg, this business about feeling like it's war. I mean, you have uh, family members who are people of color. Um, you know, this it seems as though every time we talk each week, there seems to be like another one or two uh, police killings of black people. Unfortunately, um, you know the most. Um, you know, recent uh, that we have seen. But meanwhile, uh, Jackie Goldberg, uh, another prong to this uh, that we've talked about before are these sweeping uh, voter uh, suppression laws, um, starting with Georgia, but also uh, Texas and other states, while at the same time you have legislation uh, like the uh, George Floyd Act being stuck in the U.S. uh, Congress. That act was uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass from Southern California being uh, one of the co-sponsors of, the, of this measure. Um, but now you have the black, it's languishing in the Senate, black Republican uh, Tim Scott of South Carolina, the other black senators, uh, uh, Cory uh, Booker, one of the other black senators, Cory Booker, in conversation with him as his Senator Warnock to see if they could come up with some kind of compromise. So Jackie Goldberg, it does seem that murder after murder after murder happens, there's a lot of talk, but then what actually happens? I mean, your, your thoughts on all this? 
Well, uh, unless we get rid of the the ability uh, for uh, one Republican person to stop any legislation from going forward, unless we change the rules, uh, we're not going to see much change because the Republican Party has made a decision, and its decision is is to defend white supremacy in all of its forms everywhere. That includes voter suppression. That includes so-called anti-riot laws. That includes uh, embracing the notion that, uh, that police are uh, almost always right. Uh, the Chauvin case was the singular exception, and thank God we had one of those so we can prove that we're all right. Everything's fine now. We, we got a conviction one place and one place in, the, in America in history, so everything's okay now. And so we have to defend white supremacy because it's quite clear that in a very few, very few years, there aren't going to be enough whites without suppression to control anything in politics. And God bless us, we just got to stop that. So, yes, this is a war. This is a war. This is a war. This is a war against the changes that come because the country's demographics are changing and because many white people are changing. Why do you have to suppress demonstrations? Because it was those demonstrations that began along with the videos of George Floyd's murder and others. It was that that began many white people thinking for the first time, I know it sounds hard to believe, but for the first time that systemic racism was real and that they had some obligation to do something about it. That was new. That has never happened in the 77 years I've been alive. And when that begins to happen, it puts the enormous fear in those folks who depend on white supremacy uh, for what them feeling good about America. So that's, that's where we are. It is a war. It is a war. And unfortunately, some, one side has guns and is using them. I mean, I've just looked at the Brown case, and oh, my God, what is going on? Shooting somebody that was fleeing a, a warrant being served? And you shoot them from the back of their car until they're dead? Really? Why don't you just wait till they land and go get them? You know, I mean, the kinds of things that people think it's okay to do, that there are no consequences for, until we change all of that, this war is going to get worse. But I have news for them. We're ready to fight on the other side. We're not going to go down quietly. Right. And on that note, um, Dr. Gerald Horn, a couple of things here. One is listening um, to Dante's aunt um, talk about basically how we're criminalized because of our skin. I mean, that's one thing that this experiment of the United States, hopefully people across the country, around the world could see now how basically you're criminalized just because you're black or brown, that's fundamentally a lot of, of what is happening. But this business about being armed, I mean, if people don't know, I haven't heard about the um, um, the coalition, what is it, uh, NFC uh, coalition, uh, they should find out about it because it is true that the state entities are very well armed increasingly. You find that black people, and likely other people of color, but I know about black people are also arming themselves. I'm not putting that forward as any kind of solution. But Dr. Horn, just your thoughts on all this before we have to wrap up. Well, first of all, with regards to the Chauvin case, it was very unique because mass protests led to global protests, and then you had Keith Ellison, a former member of the Congressional Black Caucus, as Minnesota Attorney General, who was able to marshal the resources of the state in order to put forward an effective prosecution of Derek Chauvin. 
However, we should know that the right wing is searching for revenge. We know that there's ultra-right influence in the 18,000-plus police departments, not to mention these, this legislation you just mentioned, which is probably the most ominous, being given immunity to drivers who hit protesters, which has become a trend, I'm afraid to say, in recent months. And then, of course, there's the underlying issue, which was pointed to in this last segment, that is to say, it's not just the color of the skin, it's the fact that the question of slavery and the fact that during slavery, black people in particular were seen as disruptors of the status quo, aiding foreign invaders, such as the British, aiding Native American rebellions, such as in Florida. And then the enslavers were expropriated without compensation, meaning black people were viewed not only as both disruptors, but as symbols of lost fortune. This also feeds this anti-status uh, mania, which I referred to with regard to climate change, which is going to handicap the United States' ability to move on this climate emergency. And so because we don't have an adequate analysis or theory about how slavery has infused every pore of this body politic, we are flying blind with regard to trying to figure out where to go from here. I should also say that this, it's doubtful, I'm afraid to say, if the Chauvin case will educate other cops as to what might befall them if they shoot the unarmed, because history has shown that that is not necessarily the kind of deterrent that's needed. So I would say that um, when, uh, when we need to raise these questions, not only of uh, defunding the police, of turning police more into social workers rather than invading Marines, but we also need to talk about arming the police. That is to say, they're loaded down with excess Pentagon material, which makes it seem as if they're patrolling Fallujah or Kabul, more so than urban nodes in the United States of America. Absolutely. Uh, really connecting the dots as you do so brilliantly. Dr. Gerald Horn and all of our panelists, Jackie Goldberg, Laura Carlson, thank all of you. If it, we are out of time, today's show produced by me, that's uh, Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank Kiana Williams, our audio engineer, assistant producer, Romero Funes. If you like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archive and you all please stay safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.